This is Hamlet to Hamilton. I'm your host, Emily C.A. Snyder. You're listening to Season 3, Episode 4, Macbeth and the Cut Soliloquy. To be? To be. Or not to be. To be or not to be. That is the question. Or not. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Season 3, where we are talking about soliloquy. Uh, That's going to rhyme. It's just going to rhyme, friends. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to thank our patrons on Patreon for making this entire podcast possible. If you would like to join us over there and help support the show, you can join us at patreon.com backslash Hamlet to Hamilton. And uh, you'll get goodies and perks and most of all, the warm, fuzzy feeling that you are helping to create a renaissance of verse drama in this 21st century, which is really pretty cool. I also want to make it known to anyone for whom this may be their first introductory podcast, first, welcome. Second, you should be able to follow today's episode, even if you haven't heard any of the other episodes. However, if at any point you get a little lost or we use a vocabulary word that you're unfamiliar with, head on over to hamlettohamilton.com and you will find all the resources that you need on that site. That's hamlettohamilton.com. So let's, without further ado, dive into today's topic, where we're looking at the play of Macbeth by Shakespeare, and you, (laughs) I'm generally not a suspicious person, uh, but I have, I have done almost everything one can do with this play. I have been in it multiple times, I've directed it. Uh, I've done lights for it. Another time I did sound. I've produced it. I stage managed Verdi's opera of it. And it's not my favorite Shakespeare play. Um, and and yes, actually, a couple of the times, significant things have gone wrong. So I myself will probably be using the term Mackers more than the title Macbeth. Uh, just, just for my own <laughs> peace of soul. Um, of course, this play, also famously called the Scottish play for similar suspicious reasons. Um, if you want to find out more about the use of mackers, I highly suggest watching season two of Slings and Arrows, which focuses on our fictional group of Canadian Shakespearean repertory theater folk putting on both mackers and Romeo and Juliet. I happen to think that the Romeo and Juliet uh, B-plot storyline um, tickles my fancy more. Um, but the the main part of season two is actually about uh, putting on mackers and dealing with a very... <laughs> uh, a, a very treacherous lead actor, which... Um, Definitely happens. Definitely. You have a certain demographic of actor who act in one way and they've acted that way their entire career and they've had a long career and they've never really been corrected. And uh, and season two of Slings and Arrows 
captures that beautifully. Anyway, so as mentioned, we are going to be talking about Mackers. We're going to be looking mostly at uh, Macbeth's soliloquies. Again, we're holding off on Lady M for our episode on soliloquy and madness, in which we will look at Lady M, Ophelia, and Lear. But today we're looking at a really interesting thing that Shakespeare does with soliloquy in Macbeth, which is what I'm calling the cut soliloquy. Now, last time we looked at all of Hamlet's seven soliloquies. And when people think about the word soliloquy, uh, as mentioned last time, what they usually think of is, in fact, the guy in black with a skull sort of pouring out his heart to the audience, um, sometimes in his own mind. In the last episode, we also talked about whether performance should be directed dress or sort of just interior uh, to the actor, you know, them just happening to think out loud, but not acknowledging the audience. Um, So the first half hour of uh, episode three of season three on Hamlet's seven soliloquies uh, addresses that. We will not be addressing that again in this podcast. But the reason why Hamlet's soliloquies, we tend to think, are the only way to do a soliloquy um, is because they are so effective. And because what Hamlet is doing, no matter whom he's addressing or not addressing, um, tend to really reveal his state of mind and tend to be written very much in his voice. And, and this is important to today, what we also found is that (laughs) Before every darn soliloquy, uh, except maybe his first, he actually, he literally, he textually sends everyone who could possibly be on stage away from him. (laughs) So uh, Shakespeare makes it very clear that he is alone. In fact, uh, the first line technically of, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I, is now I am alone, (laughs) which... (laughs) which is just great. Um, Macbeth was written after Hamlet. It was written not for Queen Elizabeth, but for King James I, who was from Scotland, but also English. Um, People weren't sure whether they were going to be Anglican or Catholic again under him. There was a lot of uncertainty about what his court would be like. But one thing that people knew was that he was, he was in fact himself super into the supernatural, by which I do not mean the excellent CW show with uh, two very hot men in the middle of America wandering around uh, in their Apollo and killing various ghosties and ghoulies while, while pouring out their hearts in monologue to each other. But... Uh, I mean, in fact, the idea of the supernatural. He was very into the idea of witches. He was very into the idea of possession. And so in Macbeth, uh, which is one of the earlier plays that Shakespeare wrote for King James I, you can see that, I mean, Shakespeare's a smart businessman. Let's put it that way. He is a smart businessman. And he's like, oh, this dude likes witches and things, or doesn't like witches, but is like, ooh, witches, how do we kill them? Um, 
I will write everything supernatural in this play. And in fact, um, again, I, I think I've somehow been involved with like nine, eight or nine different productions of Macbeth over my life. Um, and I've seen many, many, many more. In fact, most recently saw Daniel Craig uh, on Broadway, which was a really interesting experience in which I can put into a little unhinged rant for our patrons over on Patreon. Um, but uh, but the thing is that Mackers is one of those interesting pieces to produce because you have many, so many spectacular elements to consider, like, are you going to have blood and bloody hands? If so, then what does your laundry bill look like? And also, how do you make your fake blood? Uh, there's many, many methods I have yet to see. I have yet to personally make or buy any fake blood that really worked for me. But anyway, um, how are you going to do the witches? Are the witches going to double as other characters in the play? This particular play has so many random characters that just show up for one scene to give exposition to each other. Um, so do you repurpose that for a character? What time period do you put it in? There's so much in the way of politics. What sort of political statements about your own world are you going to make? Um, there was a very famous production at the Folger Theater in D.C. in 2008 which was co-directed by Teller of the Penn and Teller magician duo, who are excellent. Teller is the one who, in the act, uh, is silent. And he saw Macbeth as essentially a series of really great magic tricks. So he did interesting things with, um, you know, with the, is this a dagger I see before me? And, and all sorts of very cool stuff. They also cut the script in a really interesting way so that like Lady M and Mackers would be having their soliloquies simultaneously sort of woven together. And we will talk about woven and simultaneous soliloquies in another episode. Uh, but today, let's talk about what a cut soliloquy is, what I'm calling a cut soliloquy. Before we do that, let's make sure to go over what our working definition of a soliloquy is for this season. So, for us, a soliloquy is a largely uninterrupted speech of length delivered by an isolated character, as mentioned before with the intercut pen and tell or teller version, uh, some in some cases, there's more than one character having soliloquies simultaneously, but delivered by an isolated character who does not intend to be overheard by any other in-world character. Um, it's debatable whether they're okay with being overheard by the chorus, by a narrator, so on and so forth. A soliloquy is about in-world events, uh, so the person soliloquizing is not suddenly going to turn and give a political speech about their actual ideology. It's going to be from the character's point of view about the events of what's happening in the show. A soliloquy may be written in any style 
of language. So it could be using prosaic language, rhetorical language, poetic language, nonsense language, so on and so forth. A soliloquy may be in any formatting, which includes a paragraph, verse, all the different types of verse. Go back and listen to Redefining Verse Drama, episode two. It can be in song, which is a type of formatting. Um, I think there is a case to be made that I wonder if soliloquy could be an action. I don't know. Tell me what you think about that, because like... Uh, one of the formatting is pictures, right? Um, so yeah, but I feel like clown and things like that might might actually use just movement almost as soliloquy, mime, things along those lines. I haven't given it that much thought. Tell me what you think. Anyway, so again, a soliloquy is a largely uninterrupted speech of length delivered by an isolated character who does not intend to be overheard by any other character, that is, someone who can actually affect the events of the play. A soliloquy is always about in-world events, meaning it is kept within the theatrical reality. A soliloquy may be written in any style, prose, rhetoric, poetry, nonsense. A soliloquy may be formatted in any way, that's paragraph, verse, song, like on musical notation, so on. And the thing that we're going to be focused on in cut soliloquies is that part that says largely uninterrupted and delivered by an isolated character. Now, by isolated, again, classically, we think of something like Hamlet, where Hamlet is textually alone on the stage. He even goes out of his way to get rid of people (laughs) and dismiss them so that he can talk uh, without anyone else on stage. That is not true for Mackers, which means that this is an option that you can use as a playwright. Someone can be surrounded by a scene, can even be in the middle of a scene, and essentially cut away or cut back to the scene and do soliloquy in between. This is why we say it's an isolated character um, with the conventions of theater. And in this case, I am I am speaking and thinking mostly about theater, but you can get, uh, absolutely, you can have cut soliloquies using a camera, using audio. Um, it's kind of about whatever the tricks are that are available to you depending on what medium you're using. Uh, so in theater, there's just sort of a quality that we do or a person might actually step out or this would be a very good place for the character to go from looking at and speaking directly to his fellow characters, um, his in this case, just because Mackers is in my brain, to turning to the audience and speaking to them. And by that turning to the audience and using direct address, we know we're in soliloquy now. Um, There's also something that I'm going to call a drift soliloquy, which we will talk about in another episode. Um, So we've had sort of the classical soliloquy with Hamlet. Now we're looking at the cut soliloquy. And a cut soliloquy... Uh, part of that definition for me is that the character is isolated, but not alone. And that the character essentially continues either 
bookended on either side of the soliloquy or even interspersed within the soliloquy, as we're going to see in a minute, um, that they, they are knowledgeable that they are still in a scene. And so this is another reason why many people speaking about soliloquy say that a soliloquy is something that is always and only ever happening in a character's own mind. Therefore, it's just sort of the audience and the playwright um, and the actor, but that everyone is sort of tuning in to the interior monologue of whatever character we're interested in. Um, but that, uh, that again, soliloquy must always be the interior of a character and, and them sort of figuring things out. Um, I push back on that a little bit just because of two other types of soliloquies we're going to be looking at, one of which is the overheard soliloquy where the person um, – it's meant to be understood that they are speaking out loud and that other people – are hearing them and that that can actually affect the show. So therefore, while a soliloquy may be used for a sort of classically for a character to, to figure things out, it's not always silent, right? And the other thing is that there are those soliloquies, which I'm going to call the villain soliloquies, which the character is not figuring things out. It might be their entire in, interior speech, but often it's written almost on the verge of an address to the audience. Um, I'm thinking of Iago here. I'm thinking of Richard III. They're not figuring things out. They're telling you what they're going to do next. It's a bit expository. Um, so, so... There are lots of different types of soliloquies is what I'm getting at. And I'm giving you hopefully a little teaser of what's to come. But a cut soliloquy happens in the middle of a scene. There are lines where you cut away and we tune into just the interior um, or just the point of view, whatever that might mean, of a single character like a largely a single character, who suddenly becomes isolated in that moment. Uh, whether you suddenly change the camera angle, whether, think Ferris Bueller's day off, right? He just turns to the camera and starts speaking to us perhaps in the middle of a scene. And we know that this is a soliloquy. It's not even necessarily sort of like him working things out Hamlet-like. Uh, he's just turning and and speaking to us at soliloquy. Similarly, in Fleabag, for example, she'll turn and speak to us more in asides. Uh, an aside versus soliloquy. An aside is very short for our purposes, less than about an inch, six, uh, an, yeah, an inch of text. Um, so that's an aside. This is why a soliloquy tends to be a speech of length. Um, Interestingly enough, as we were talking about before, sometimes the aside in Fleabag, which is an excellent series if you haven't seen it, currently on Amazon Prime, um, she will, in fact, just give us a look and see us. Uh, if you've seen season two, there's a moment where another character also looks at us. So again, usually it's an isolated person. Um 
but there are there are things you can play and subvert with it. Let's take a look then at Macbeth's first soliloquy. I am reading from the Folger Shakespeare Library, fittingly enough, just speaking about the Penn and Teller one. Sorry, the Teller one. Um, I'm reading Folger Shakespeare Library, Macbeth. Uh, this is edited by Barbara A. Moat um, and Paul Werstein. All apologies for how I said that. It's from Washington Square Press in New York. And uh, the copyright is 1992, but this edition looks like it's a third printing in 2004. The cool thing about the Folger, as opposed to the Arden, which is what we were looking at last time, is that the Folger has all the notes on the left side of the page and then has the text on the right side of the page. Um, the idea being that it's meant to be very actor-friendly, so that you turn the page, you keep your eye on the same, like in the same location, and when I turn the page, I don't have to even move my eyes to the left. If there's a word or a phrase I'm curious about, I can just glance over to the left and find generally very short notes, uh, as opposed to the Arden with extremely long notes. So if you're looking for an actor-friendly version, the Folger Library may be the one for you. Um, if you're looking for deep dramaturgical notes, the Arden may be more helpful. Again, it depends on the edition. It depends on the editors uh, and what their purpose is, essentially, what they're trying to convey and who they have in mind might be reading their edition. This is Act 1, Scene 3. For those following along, it is on page 23. And uh, Macbeth and Banquo have just met the witches, and they've done the whole, you will be king, and then Banquo's children will be king, and Macbeth and Banquo are going, this is weird. And then in come two, uh, two noblemen, with the news that, in fact, the first prophecy is true, and Macbeth is now the Thane of Cawdor, not just the Thane of Glums. And the witches had said, "You." by the way, I'm so sorry, but I am going to presume in this podcast and in a good chunk of this particular season, whenever I talk about Shakespeare, that you have a really pretty good grasp of the play and the text already. If you don't, go ahead and watch a version, listen to a version, read the play, whatever your favorite way of consuming media is, um, and then come on back, uh, because I will be presuming you already know Macbeth. Uh, so anyway, so the witches have said you will be, you are Thane of Glums, you will be Thane of Cawdor, and then you will be king. Macbeth knows he's the Thane of Glums. In comes Angus and Ross, two lords, to say, you are now Thane of Cawdor. And uh, Banquo, I'm going to read a little bit of it, because again, it's a scene that cuts to a soliloquy. Banquo, Macbeth's friend, said, what, can the devil speak true? And Macbeth, talking to the lord, says, the Thane of Cawdor lives, why do you dress me in borrowed robes? And Angus says, who was the Thane lives yet, but under heavy judgment bears that life which he deserves to lose. Whether he was combined with those of Norway, um, the Thane of Cawdor basically did a treason and is going to be dead pretty soon. Or did line the rebel with hidden help and vantage, or that with both he labored in his country rack, I know not. 
but treason's capital confessed and proved have overthrown him. And then we have Macbeth do a series of like mini asides um, that are prologue to his soliloquy. So it's very clever. We sort of cut out, cut in, cut out, cut in, and then cut out to the soliloquy. In early musical theater, and we still have this in, in current musical theater to a degree, but certainly in early musical theater at the turn of the 20th century, when musical theater was just starting to distinguish itself from its operetta uh, roots, which itself came from operatic roots, um, it was extremely common to do a pre-verse, which is to say a little piece of music. It usually was sort of a patter type thing. In opera, it's called a recitative. And it's like, it's semi-melodic, but it's kind of not. Um, so for example, um, in, gosh, what is it? In The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart, you have this little recitative. You'll hear how it's sort of like half-spoken. And it's, um, Junzelfini momento, che godro senza fano, imbracciulido mio. Which is just, you know, it, occasionally we go up, occasionally we go down. It's very different from when she actually gets into her aria, which is pretty much a soliloquy. Um, in this case, a soliloquy that's meant to be overheard. Aha! <laughs> and she sings, Right? So very much, you can hear the difference. Um, kind of speaky. Very melodic. And that's how we know that we're in pre-verse and then we go into the actual soliloquy. Another example is in Les Miserables with one of my favorite songs, although the entire opera is amazing. Um, rock opera, if you will, sung through musical, whatever you want to call it. Um, on My Own, uh, as sung by Eponine in Act Two. And she's got, again, a pre-verse, which is kind of speaky, that gets her into her soliloquy, which is a classic soliloquy. She's alone on the stage. She's pouring out her feelings. She is speaking to the audience, but it's in her own head. Um, so the pre-verse is, and I'll I'll go straight through because it's it's short enough. So you're gonna hear the kind of talky pre-verse, and then it gets into the actual melodic aria or soliloquy. Okay, and I'm gonna. I just, this is second time recording it. Uh, I cannot sing it in her alto register, so I'll bring it up a little bit. And now I'm all alone again, nowhere to go, no one to turn to. Without a home, without a friend, without a face to say hello to. And now the night is near, now I can make believe he's here. Sometimes I walk alone at night when everybody else is sleeping. I think of him and then I'm happy with the company I'm keeping. The city goes to bed, and I can live inside my head on my own, pretending he's beside me all alone. I walk with him till morning, and so on. Uh, obviously, I won't sing the whole thing. 
But hopefully you get the idea of a pre-verse that kind of gets you into the song and then the actual song. We have the same thing here, but using asides, which are short uh, little sort of <laughs> not quite soliloquies, uh, short little isolated lines. Uh, and then even lines that are asides to a person. So going back and forth, are we in a scene? Are we speaking to someone? Are we isolated and thinking alone in this case? So uh, the nobleman finishes off explaining that uh, that this guy's a traitor. And so there you go. And Macbeth in an aside says, Gloms and Thane of Cawdor, the greatest is behind. Then to the lords, thanks for your pain. Then aside to Banquo, do you not hope your children shall be kings when those that gave the Thane of Cawdor to me promise no less to them? Banquo replies, that trusted hope. So presumably it's still in an aside, just the two of them. So still kind of pre-verse. Still, we're in a scene, but we're moving towards isolated speaking. Banquo in an aside says to Macbeth, that trusted home might yet enkindle you unto the crown besides the Thane of Cawdor. But tis strange and oftentimes to win us to our harm. The instruments of darkness tell us truths, win us with honest trifles to betray us in deepest consequence. And then Banquo cuts back to the main scene, speaks to the two lords saying, cousins, a word, I pray you. And there's a stage direction here that says they step aside, which of course is a good theatrical way to let Macbeth go into the full aria, the full song, the full soliloquy, but it's a cut soliloquy. So Macbeth, now that Banquo has drawn the other two aside, says, two truths are told as happy prologues to the swelling act of the imperial theme. And then he cuts back to the scene and he says, I thank you, gentlemen. And then he cuts back to the soliloquy and he says, this supernatural soliciting cannot be ill cannot be good. If ill, why hath it given me earnest of success commencing in a truth? I am Thane of Cawdor. If good, why do I yield to that suggestion whose horrid image doth unfix my hair and make my seated heart knock in my ribs against the use of nature? Present fears are less than horrible imaginings. My thought, whose murder yet is but fantastical, shakes so my single state of man that function is smothered in surmise and nothing is but what is not. Then, is this overheard or not? Well, apparently not. Banquo says, so we cut back to the scene, look how our partner's wrapped. Macbeth, still in soliloquy, says, if chance will have me king, why, chance may crown me without my stir. Banquo, back in scene, says, New honors come upon him like our strange garments, cleave not to their mold, but with the aid of use. Um, meaning, essentially, don't worry that he's apparently moving his lips and talking to himself like he's Chang in that, ep in that season three episode of Community. Um, <laughs> so Banquo's like, uh, yeah, he's just overcome by the promotion. Macbeth still soliloquizing, and they're actually sharing lines, uh, Banquo and Macbeth, as they're cutting away, cutting to, cutting away, cutting to. Very cool. 
So Macbeth says, come what may, time and the hour runs through the roughest day. Banquo calls Macbeth back into the scene and says, worthy Macbeth, we stay upon your leisure. Macbeth, not in soliloquy, but now back in scene, so cuts back to the scene, says, give me your favor. My dull brain was wrought with things forgotten. Kind gentlemen, your pains are registered where every day I turn the leaf to read them. So kind gentlemen are the nobles. Let us towards the king. Then he pulls Banquo aside. So like half soliloquy. Think upon what hath chanced. And at more time, the interim having waited, let us speak our free hearts each to each other. Banquo says very gladly. Macbeth, then, till then enough. And then back to the scene. Come, friends. Woo! All right. That is like a really intense use of soliloquy aside and scene right? But this is why, hopefully you can understand, why our definition of soliloquy is a largely uninterrupted, because Macbeth is interrupted, kind of, right? Our tuning into Macbeth is interrupted, and Macbeth even interrupts himself at the beginning of the sort of soliloquy proper by saying, two truths are told as happy prologues to the swelling act of the imperial theme. I thank you, gentlemen. This supernatural soliciting cannot be ill. And do you see, in audio, I might I might do this, right? Two truths are told as happy prologues to the swelling act of the imperial theme. I thank you, gentlemen. This supernatural soliciting cannot be ill, right? So we use the medium to help us know uh, whether this is soliloquy, whether this is uh, speaking out loud in a scene. So, as we said, a largely uninterrupted speech of length, those little, like, one and two line asides before, or even the asides to Banquo, which are a little bit more substantial. Um, but the soliloquy is a speech of length, and it's delivered by an isolated character. So Macbeth, when he goes into the asides to himself or into the full soliloquy, he's isolated from the other characters. In fact, um, we also know that Banquo is a character who, who can and does alter and change and affect the plot. Um, and so we know that the character of Macbeth, who also is capable of affecting the plot, is intending, as we said, not to be overheard by any other in-world character. What would happen if Banquo heard this? It would change things, wouldn't it? Um, and it may be, I mean, now that I'm speaking it, because Banquo's next actions are to be really suspicious of Macbeth. Uh, well, uh, he gets more suspicious after Duncan is killed. Spoilers. Um but okay, yeah, what would happen if, now imagine that Banquo said, cousins, a word, I pray you. And then he, maybe Banquo sneaks forward to hear Macbeth say, present fears are less than horrible, I'll do it, audio. Present fears are less than horrible imaginings. My thought, whose murder yet is but fantastical. And you can imagine if Banquo is hearing this, he might be like, murder? What? <laughs> Murder, dude, what you gonna do? <laughs> um, as opposed to Banquo saying, oh, look how our partner's wrapped. New honors come upon him. Um, 
and and seeming, in fact, in the next scene, to be cool with bringing Duncan, well, in the next few scenes. Banquo's fine with bringing Duncan to Macbeth's house. If Banquo had overheard uh, Macbeth say the word murder (laughs) in the very beginning and using the word imperial and things like that, uh, Banquo might have behaved very differently. Uh, I am in some ways less interested. Is this poetic language? It's a little poetic. Is it rhetorical? It's much more rhetorical. Is it using nonsense words? No, we don't even have a single, oh, that this too, too sullied flush. Um, yeah, is it prosaic? Uh, not really prosaic. I would say it's bordering on rhetorical or poetic. And that's essentially how you use the ornaments of language, right? Uh, but you can see him working through in a much more rhetorical way. This supernatural soliciting cannot be ill, cannot be good. If ill, why hath it given me earnest of success, commenting in a truth? I am Thane of Cawdor. If good, so you can see him weighing things out. Um, this is something that you could direct to the audience. To me, it feels a bit more interior. It's interesting, and the thing is... Um, the actor Burbage would have been the one to have played both Hamlet and Macbeth. And in fact, you can tell as, as Shakespeare is working more and more with the same company or a similar company of major actors, that he's tailoring his writing for the strengths of each actor. So you can definitely feel Hamlety things in Macbeth. But in terms of soliloquy having the ability very classically to express who a character is, how they think, um, sort of what their speech patterns are, you notice uh, right away that Macbeth, even under the beginning of pressure, is a little bit less erratic than Hamlet was, where Hamlet was having sort of like constant outbursts to himself um, you know, fie on it, foe. It is an unweeded garden that grows to seed. Things rank and gross in nature possess it merely that it should come to this. Like his thoughts are bah, da, bah, da, bah. Um, These ones are a little bit more, it feels to me sort of like walking, right? If this, then that. If this, then that. And so I, as an actor, am not really questioning why we're using eidetic stickic verse here, which is to say stickic, it's one line after another. It's not all over the page. It's not making a shape. Um, Eidetic meaning it's very tightly structured, in this case, using iambic pentameter. That said, it's interesting, and I would love to see the original sides because some of the earlier parts of this scene seem to have very arbitrary line endings, which is strange, especially for late Shakespeare, when he's gotten better and better at writing eidetic stickic, uh, a.k.a. iambic pentameter blank verse. Okay. Um, and so he's been playing more with line endings. And some of these line endings, when it's just this scene, honestly, to me, feels more like it would be better in prose. or Sorry, not prose, in paragraph form. Um, that there's no need to have it in uh, verse form. Um, If you are not sure what those mean, go back to redefining verse drama. 
or take a look at hamletohamilton.com. Whereas once we go into the soliloquy proper, I feel much more the need for essentially tightly structured uh, song-like elements that, in this case, strict repeated meter gives me. And even that tossing out, cutting to, cutting back, am I in scene? Am I in scene with everybody? Am I in scene with Banquo? Am I, in fact, isolated in soliloquy or in a side? Um, I'm happy to have that tight structure. And I think that's why I kind of wish and would be very curious to look again at if we happen to have the original sides and not necessarily um, the folio or quarto printings. I'm sorry, I haven't done my homework on this one regarding uh, how many folios, how many quartos it shows up in. Um, But uh, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to go from paragraph, which is much looser, very prosaic language, just sort of these are the facts, this is what's going on, to suddenly drifting into something more musical in the way that we talked about a pre-verse and then going into, or pre-song, right, and then going into an aria. I kind of like the idea that we use perhaps paragraph and then go into this pre-verse, pre-soliloquy, and then go into soliloquy. Um and it's interesting. It, it feels correct not to go back into paragraph form, uh, mostly because there's there's very little at the – this scene just ends. This is a very short play for a Shakespeare play, actually. All right. So let's take a little break, and then we'll take a quick look at some of Macbeth's other soliloquies, as well as more ideas of cut uh, cut soliloquies. All right, see you after this ad break. Hamlet to Hamilton is coming to London. If you're on London on June 11th, go ahead and ping us on Twitter, DM us, and uh, we would love to see you. We're going to be gathering in a pub on June 11th, 2022 to raise a pint and get really nerdy about verse and most of all, enjoy each other's company. That's June 11th, 2022, in the afternoon, in London, and uh, we will see you there. All right, hello and welcome back. We are going to be staying with the character of Macbeth, uh, rather than doing also Lady M's soliloquies again. We'll be saving that for another episode. Um, Or if there's anyone's soliloquy that you would like me in particular to address, please do let me know. Give us a shout out on Twitter. You can find us at Hamlet2Hamilton with the numeral two in between, or use the hashtag Hamlet2Hamilton all spelled out. Um, So we are now in Act 1, Scene 7. We are on page 39 of the Folger Shakespeare Library edition. And it begins with Macbeth not only isolated, but in fact alone. Uh, he has had his scene with Lady M where she's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's kill the king. And Macbeth, uh, we tune into him again. And the reason why I do want to do this, it will end by cutting back to scene. But the reason why I want to look at this is more for the character. Some of you have asked essentially, how do I show character in a soliloquy? And if you listen to the Hamlet one, I think you will hear 
about how his his thoughts sort of wheel all over the place, he'll interrupt himself with another thought, which I love. He'll interrupt himself with nonsense, nearly trying to swear. He will comment on his own stuff. His brain is very agile, and it's kind of, it's like all your neurons are firing at once, and that's what comes out in the text. He can have three schwumfs, three sort of, you know, hemi-schwumfs, little little bitty bits on a single line, um, and they're all strung together on that line. Uh, For Macbeth, while I am seeing many sort of sejuras, which is to say the idea sort of wraps around a line and a half, right? Um, I am not seeing him, his brain sort of, again, it feels like he's ambling. So I want you to feel the difference between these two characters um, and how language can show us character. One of the things that you might want to do for yourself if you're a writer of verse drama is to say, okay, my character is always going to have three thoughts on one line of verse, or my character will always end their thought at the end of the line of verse, even if it's ending it with a comma or a semicolon, not necessarily a full stop. Um, Or you could say my character, as in this case, will frequently have some sort of sejura That's a pause or a break, usually a period, a comma, something like that. Uh, In the middle-ish of the line. And what this does, again, for me, as I think you're going to see in this second soliloquy, which is, if it were done when tis done, then toward, well, it were done quickly, which is just one of the worst things to try to say, (laughs) especially because you feel like you ought to say it quickly since it ends with quickly. Or at least I always do, and it's, I feel like it's frequently performed rapid fire. (laughs) Anyway, um, I often feel, and I think you're going to hear this sort of ambling, this sort of weighing, uh, like he's a Libra or something. Uh, Well, and it makes sense. He is asking the questions of justice. Is this just? Particularly in the beginning parts. Um, And this tells us something perhaps about Macbeth. It might show you that he's a bit waffly, but not erratic. It might show you that he's actually a little bit slower of thought than Hamlet sort of swooping and almost faster than him, faster than he could speak thoughts. Um, You'll also notice that he uses poetry in a slightly different way. Um, So you could analyze it from what sort of ornaments is this character going to use? Again, you can be asking, um, what sort of verse are they using? Are they using a morphic structure, which makes a shape? Are they, Is there words all over the page? Are we using something very highly structured? Um, and so on and so forth. Again, listen to the second episode of this season. Let's take a look at this soliloquy. And I think you're going to hear the sort of back and forthness. Um, then try performing this soliloquy. See if you find something different than what I'm finding. Uh, great, here we go. If it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success, that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here, but here, 
Upon this bank and shoal of time, we jump the life to come. But in these cases, we still have judgment here, that we but teach bloody instructions, which, being taught, return to plague the inventor. This even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poison chalice to our own lips. He's here in double trust. First, as I am his kinsman and his subject, strong both against the deed, then as his host, who should against his murderer shut the door, not bear the knife myself. Besides, this Duncan hath borne his faculty so meek, hath been so clear in his great office, that his virtues will plead like angels trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off, and pity like a naked newborn babe striding the blast or heaven's cherubim horsed upon the sightless couriers of the air, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye, that tears shall drown the wind. I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition, which o'erleaps itself and falls on the other. In comes Lady M., Oh, how now? What news? And uh, so he cuts into scene midway through his final line, which is kind of cool. Um, I can still see, and to me it feels like traces of DNA of how Shakespeare thinks and how Burbage thinks. I know that for myself, when I write for a specific actor, um, and this happens all the time, this happens all the time, I can feel the like DNA of myself and of the actor, and also of the character. So it's kind of birth by thruple. Um, <laughs> go into the creation of their soliloquy. I'm thinking particularly of writing the table round, and I'm thinking especially, and I may have mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again, writing a soliloquy for Gawain, and Gawain's actor uh, and myself, uh, his name is Jeremy Lister, so he is one of the parents of this soliloquy. And then you have the character of Gawain and just what Gawain's going through. Uh, and then you have myself trying to capture it in paper. Um, we had actually several long conversations. I'm sure I mentioned this. Several long conversations about where the character was at at this particular moment in the play. And at first, I was trying to write it out um, much more cohesively, uh, much more uh, essentially that the character has already processed what has just happened and is capable of expressing that. Um, and and my actor came back and said, that is not the right experience. Um, the, the traumatic thing that has just happened is so recent that... You, that that I need something more fractured. I need something more fragmented. I need to be asking the questions. And f if I get answers, it's fumbling towards answers, if anything. But all the stuff that you and I have processed, this character has not processed yet. And so I went back and I rewrote the soliloquy. I think I wrote it three times. Um, the first time was sort of a stab at all the ideas and we talked about it. And then I tried to get all the ideas down better. <laughs> and then he was like, it needs to be fragmented. And so I went and I wrote a, a verse that is much more a combination of protean stickic verse with some adatosic elements, 
If you don't know what I mean, HamletToHamilton.com. Um, and that was right. And the cool thing about it is that, uh, again, it had the DNA of how Gawain was speaking throughout the rest of the play. Uh, he was a character that fell very easily into paragraph form and prosaic language. And then in his sort of romantic moments fell just as easily, in this case, into prose and many image, like imagery, ornamentation, poetry, poetical language. Uh, and in this one, he was kind of caught in unfinished sentences, actually. And um, and it was really interesting because every night that I watched that particular soliloquy, I thought that Jeremy, like, maybe hadn't quite memorized it <laughs> and was, was sort of half paraphrasing, improvising it. I was like, oh, my gosh, this sounds so natural. Uh, he must have rewritten it for me or or he's making it up or something. And it, and he, it wasn't till closing night that he was like, no, you wrote every like ellipses and half sentence and everything. I was just executing what was on the page. So that's why uh, what I mean by like, I so, if you want to get character and like to really show who a character is, particularly through soliloquy, there's nothing like having an actor giving some DNA. So it's not just you and the character making, giving birth to the soliloquy. Get a thruple. Get a thruple going, my friends. Get a dramaturg in there. Get a quadruple. Like, just throw everyone's DNA into the mixer. Um, and out comes a, a new creation. Um, so in perform, that's a long way around to say, in performing this speech, I could feel, because I've done so much Shakespeare. I've performed so much Shakespeare in my life. You can tell, like, in as you speak it, as the words come out of your mouth, as you, like, feel vowels and consonants lining up right behind your teeth, you can feel when it's Shakespeare. You can feel, you can hear, you can think. The spirit of Shakespeare is just in it. Uh, that's where, for me, I can very much feel when people are trying to be Shakespeare, including his own apprentices, and you're like, ah, there's there's some DNA that's off. Um, but also having performed uh, quite a bit of Hamlet, uh, you can really feel Burbage's DNA. There's there's some combination, and I can't explain it other than than I have birthed characters with actors uh, also. And there's something just mystical about it. But but here, again, what they also have is the DNA of Macbeth, who is this and that. Um, so many ifs. If it were done. If the assassination. Um, con a lot of buts. But here, uh, upon this bank and shoal of time, we jump to life to come. But in these cases, we still have judgment here that we but teach bloody instruction, which being taught, return to plague the inventor. And it's really interesting because he's talking about, again, this is sort of the Shakespeare DNA. He's still talking about themes that Shakespeare is constantly exploring, particularly in his tragedies, of existence and of ambition and of foul deeds and of damnation um, 
right? Uh, But in these cases, we still have judgment here that we but teach bloody instruction, which, being taught, return to plague the inventor. This even-handed justice commends commends the ingredients of our poison chalice to our own lips. He's here in double trust, first as I am his kinsman and his subject, so he's he's weighing things, and it reminds me a little bit of to be or not to be, but Hamlet's character, the DNA of Hamlet, plus the DNA of Shakespeare at the time of life that he was writing it, the DNA of Burbage at the time of life he was playing it, um, bring a different quality. Um, Hamlet is, again, thinking in spurts. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or it's not but, it's or, right? Hamlet thinks in or, 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 or. Macbeth is constantly stopping himself, but, 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 but. Really interesting. Also, uh, the ornamentation of this language tends to slow me down. I find with Hamlet... Well, with all of Shakespeare, he's just a master of tempo. Uh, again, it it requires more study. <sighs> but you can feel when he's roller coastering you through. And those who have done particularly speech and voice work will be able to speak more eloquently to this. It has to do with vowels and consonants and how fluidly you can get from one word to another. Uh this this feels slower is is what i'm getting at but for those of you writing get be an actor as well as your character if you can um and, and i mean you may not be comfortable collaborating with people either and that's perfectly valid too um but in that case imagine an actor <laughs> Uh, because we don't want to be like Lord Byron, if you've listened to that unhinged rant, where he was like, besides, you have to think of the actors and how they might perform it. Ah, uh, the bourgeoisie. Ah, uh, the plebeians. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and that's just, that's just not great. Um, okay, let's. Take a quick look at the other famous one. Let's take a look at, is this a dagger I see before me? And again, um, give a lesson either to your favorite Hamlet or to last episode, if I'm your favorite Hamlet. I doubt I'm your favorite Hamlet. Uh, or read it yourself or whatever you like. Refamiliarize yourself. Wow, that's a word with Hamlet, and then let's listen to this. This is, again, a much more classical setup of a of a soliloquy, where Macbeth, this is uh, Act 2, Scene 1, page 51, Folger, where um, we know that Banquo and Fleance have just exited, so we were in a scene, and then and there's a servant with... And Macbeth says, go bid thy mistress when my drink is ready. She strike upon the bell, get thee to bed. So rather like Hamlet, he has dismissed everyone or the characters have left. So we know he's alone. This is not a cut speech. This is kind of a classic speech. Yet, is it a classic speech? Is he figuring things out? Is he isolated entirely? So here we go. 
Is this a dagger which I see before me, the handle toward my hand? Come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou not fatal vision sensible to feeling as to sight? Or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain? I see thee yet, in form as palpable as this which now I draw. And then this one uses the other half of the line to draw the dagger. Thou marshalest me the way I was going, and such an instrument I was to use. Mine eyes are made the fools of the other senses, or else worth all the rest. I see thee still, and on thy blade and dudgeon gouts of blood, which was not so before. There's no such thing. It is a bloody business which informs thus to mine eyes. Now, or the one half-world, nature seems dead, and wicked dreams abuse the curtain sleep. Witchcraft celebrates pale Hecate's offerings and withered murder, alarmed by his sentinel, the wolf, whose howls his watch thus with his stealthy pace, with Tarquin's ravishing strides towards his design moves like a ghost. Thou sure and firm-set earth, hear not my steps, which way they walk, for fear thy very stones prate of my whereabouts and take the present horror from the time which now suits with it. Whilst I threat, he lives. Words to the heat of deeds too cold breath gives, and then a bell rings. I go, and it is done. The bell invites me. Hear it not, Duncan, for it is a knell that summons thee to heaven or to hell. All right. This is, while it's a classic setup in terms of as opposed to the previous one where he was in and out of soliloquy in a cut soliloquy, that's what <laughs> TM Emily C.A. Snyder, um, a cut soliloquy where he's in and out of scene, where he's aware there's a scene going on. He even addresses the scene or addresses a single person in the scene, um, but the soliloquy is still isolated. Or the previous one where he has an isolated, in fact, alone soliloquy and then has a cut to moment when Lady M enters. This is very classical where he sends people away. But the curious thing about it, what's not our classical idea of a soliloquy, um, such as we have seen in his first two soliloquies where he's really, ooh, what is this? What do I feel? What's going on? Hmm, let me think it out. Uh, let me maybe ask the audience, uh, what should I do? What's going on? I'm tuning into my brain. Here he is almost having uh, an, well, not almost, he's absolutely having what is called an apostrophe, uh, by which I do not mean inverted commas, but rather an apostrophe in poetry is, according to Poetry Foundation, an address to a dead or absent person or a personification as if they were present. Um, I actually prefer what Grammarist says, which is, in poetry, an apostrophe is a figure of speech in which the poet addresses an absent person, an abstract idea, or a thing. Um, this apostrophe, I find, is frequently used in odes, O-D-E. 
An ode, according to Poetry Foundation, is a formal, often ceremonious lyric poem. I don't like the term lyric poem or lyric poetry, but let that be. That's a discussion for another time. That addresses and often celebrates a person, place, thing, or idea. The stanza form can vary. So you could use an apostrophe where you're talking about something or sort of to someone. You're addressing, you know, uh, the personification of something or someone who's not there. Um, You're having a conversation by yourself, you know, like you do in the car or in the shower. Uh, And an ode generally is like, woo, this thing I am apostrophizing to. All right. So this is not an ode because Macbeth is not like, yeah, daggers. Uh, He seems very ambivalent about it. And again, he's doing the one step forward, one step back. Is this? Isn't this? Is this? Isn't this? Um, I mean, just I have thee not yet. I see thee still. Art thou not fatal vision sensible to feeling as to sight? Or art thou but a art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation proceeding from the heat oppressed brain? And um this whole first section, it's really interesting because this is so well known. And I feel like this particular speech is the one where directors like play the most. Uh, in the last episode, I talked about how one of the things that I personally as a performer and as a director, even as a playwright, um, prefer is letting the actor be absolutely in control of the moment of the soliloquy. Um, Not that they're abandoned center stage, because I've seen that a lot too. Not, Not abandoning your actor center stage, but not proscribing too tightly uh, the direction of things, giving, uh, really giving the actor, really acknowledging that the actor has inherently all the agency in a soliloquy. But in this one, since in fact it is an apostrophe, Macbeth is not really talking about his feelings. He's really kind of like, Detective Mackers, um, I'm on the case as I kill the king, Detective Mackers. Uh, can we put in sirens under that column? Anyway. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry. I just really want to see that now. Um he is completely addressing this first, like, third to the dagger. And so what directors do, since it's almost, uh, since it's an apostrophe, so it he is speaking to, in this case, something that he is personifying, so often, so often... The decision is to have, in fact, I think I did this when I directed it. The decision is to have the witches with the dagger, mostly because the witches are actually in so little of it that you kind of need to keep reminding the audience as a director that, like, the witches are there, that the witches are a thing. And, you know, otherwise the witches are, like, backstage for three-fourths of the show, really. Um, so it's giving the actors something to do and they can walk around and hold a dagger and you kind of make this a scene because he is talking to the dagger. 
so this is a sort of weird one to give as a direct address. I've seen it. Uh, the other way to do it, of course, is that the actor just sort of imagines the dagger in the air before them. Uh, but in that case, they sort of pick a fixed point for this invisible dagger. They're still, again, not necessarily talking to the audience. This is closer to what I would almost call a drift. It has a drift, a drift soliloquy moment in it where uh, Macbeth drifts from talking to the dagger by the time he says, there's no such thing. It is the bloody business which informs us to mine eyes. Now or the one half world, nature seems dead. But then he basically just goes into uh, a descriptive soliloquy, where he's which we're going to see with Romeo, where he's just kind of describing witchcraft celebrates Pelhecate's offerings, um, the wolf is doing this. It might be like Tarquin, it's a ghost. And then he goes back to an apostrophe um, for a little bit with thou sure and firm set earth, hear not my steps. And then he goes back into a classical soliloquy of sort of, this is what I'm thinking now. Um, so the it, this is interesting because while the verse structure, because it's Shakespeare, is all iambic pentameter blank verse, which is also eidetic stichic verse, um, which is fine, which is fine. Again, Macbeth is so sort of like, is this, is it that, that having, you know, something tightly structured with a seizure in the middle kind of helps. I'm rocking back and forth as I, as I say this. You can't see it, but I'm rocking back and forth on my butt. Um, it's interesting, though. It's It's an apostrophe. It's an apostrophe soliloquy. And... You can do that with a character because I want you to think about uh, if you have an interior monologue, which you might not. In fact, uh, if you don't have an interior monologue, I wonder, and let us know on Twitter, ham at HamletToHamilton.com with a number two, um, do you have ever arguments out loud then in the shower or in the car or in your garage or in the stairwell of your work? Um where you are arguing, let's say, with an invisible person. <laughs> do you do that out loud? Do you do that in your brain? Maybe you don't do that at all. Um, have you ever done something where you're like talking to the world or talking to your car, you know, and it's just you in the car, but you're treating it as if it were a scene. That's an apostrophe soliloquy that you have just done. So it's interesting. We do apostrophe soliloquies, which are kind of um, scene soliloquies, uh, but they fall under soliloquy because it's a largely uninterrupted speech of length delivered by an isolated character. That dagger, that car, that boss you are arguing with in your brain are not really there. You are doing a poetical apostrophe, no matter what sort of language you are using or how you would format it. Um, it's the same, actually, if you want an example of another uh, apostrophe soliloquy, let's look again at musical theater, where we have, from My Fair Lady, just you wait, Henry Iggins, just you wait, you'll be sorry, but your tears will be too late. 
You'll dun 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 dun. I'll go straight to the theater. Just you wait, Henry Higgins. Just you wait. Is Henry Higgins? Is Henry Higgins there? No, he's there at the very end. And in fact, this is an out loud soliloquy or aria, since he does seem to hear her at the very end. So she is having an out loud apostrophe. The format happens to be singing. The style happens to be singing. Um, the language has the ornamentation of rhyme, so it's a little poetic. It, you know, just you wait, just you wait. Uh, it has repetition. Uh, so while it's semi-prosaic, it's also semi-poetic. Um, she uses nonsense. Ooh, and Riggins, just you wait until you're swimming in the sea. Uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and she has uh, even a spokeny part in the middle there, if you know the song. Anyway, so it uses a variety of different styles, but it's an apostrophe. And it's an out loud apostrophe. And for us, that would be a soliloquy, a form of soliloquy. Really kind of cool. Okay, we've just got a few more. I think it is worth going through it because if Macbeth as a character starts off much more sort of andante, walking pace, thinking, what happens as the world starts unraveling? Let's take a look. Similarly to how, and I, I pause, this is what we're going to find. In fact, I'm pretty sure, I, if you know Macbeth, you know this is what we're going to find. Whereas Hamlet starts much more, you know, fie upon it, foe. Um, by the time he gets to how all, uh, was it how all occasions do, the one that I didn't like, <laughs> um, but now love. Um, how all occasions do inform against me, that's it. He gets much more calm and a full thought is on a full line, right? Um, let's see what happens character-wise for Macbeth. Uh, when we come back from this little break. It's time for an unhinged rant. <gasps> or is it? Unhinged rants are when myself, Emily C.A. Snyder, just goes off on whatever it is that I am researching for you. And it is largely biased. It is very unscholarly. It is an extreme rant. It has a lot of profanity and it's a lot of fun. The first two unhinged rants are available for everyone on the main feed. They're about T.S. Eliot and Lord Byron. You can give them a listen. All the remaining unhinged rants, which will come out monthly, are only for our patrons on Patreon. So if you would like to hear some unhinged rants, things that are perhaps a little bit less measured and, and uh, luxury, then head on over to patreon.com slash Hamlet to Hamilton, and you'll get to hear all of the fire, fire flames from the side of my face. Unhinged rants! So act two, scene two, page 59, ends with uh, a little, what we might call a cover soliloquy, uh, which is when someone has gone off stage to do some plot and we need the person left on stage to entertain us. <laughs> and so we tune into their mind. So we've had a cut soliloquy, we've had an apostrophic soliloquy, 
and now we have a cover soliloquy. So Lady Macbeth has, and in fact, Lady Macbeth has a cover soliloquy uh, earlier in the scene. Lady Macbeth goes off to finish off their plot about killing Duncan. There's a knock, uh, and Macbeth says, Whence is that knocking? How is it with me when every noise appalls me? What hands are here? Huh, they pluck out mine eyes. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No, this my hand will rather the multitudinous sea incarnadine, making the green one red. Okay, so we've got ha, which is sort of a nonsense word. We've got a lot of poetic imagery in here. Um, We have more questions. You could bring it to the audience. Whence is that knocking? How is it with me that every noise appalls me? Will this uh, blood wash clean from my hand? You could bring it to the audience. Um, to me, it feels a little bit more interior. It's very short. It is barely an inch, but it counts as a soliloquy. Um, you could see that it's a bit more jumpy um, in in sort of feeling, but it's still not Hamlet whirling f- feeling. What I love, though, is that it's there is a tendency when you're trying to sound like Shakespeare, which many verse dramatists are trying to do, where they don't just, like, let people say things. Whence is that knocking? Um, What hands are here? Um, Wash this blood clean from my hand? No. Um, So it goes back and forth between very prosaic and very poetic language. And humans just, like, have short little thought lines, and you can put that in your verse. Going on. Act three, scene one, page 85. So Macbeth and Banquo have just talked. Banquo is about to try to book it because Banquo is not stupid and has figured out that Macbeth is a very bad liar and probably killed the gang. Also that whole witches thing. And so Banquo has skived off. Um, A servant uh, answers something to Macbeth. Macbeth says, bring them before us. He dismisses the servant. And again, we classically go into soliloquy, which is this. Let's listen to it. And we're listening for character right now, okay? To be thus is nothing, but to be safely thus. Our fears in Banquo stick deep, and in his royalty of nature reigns that which would be feared. Tis much he dares. And to that dauntless temper of his mind, he hath a wisdom that doth guide his valor to act in safety. There is none but he whose being I do fear. And under him, my genius is rebuked, as it is said Mark Antony's was by Caesar. He chid the sisters when first they put the name of king upon me and bade them speak to him. Then, prophet-like, they hailed him father to a line of kings. Upon my head, they placed a fruitless crown and put a barren scepter in my grip, thence to be wrenched with an unlineal hand, no son of mine succeeding, if it be so. For Banquo's issue have I filed my mind. For them, the gracious Duncan, have I murdered, put rancors in the vessel of my peace only for them, and mine eternal jewel given to the common enemy of man to make them kings. The seeds of 
Banquo, kings. Rather than so, come fate into the list and champion me to the utterance. Who's there? Okay, so, and we, again, cut back uh, with the last foot of it. This is, again, a much more classical piece. And in fact, it's verging on what I'm going to call, and I think I mentioned this, a villain soliloquy. This is much more Iago. This is much more Richard III. Um, it's it's a little bit, you know, <laughs> um, but character-wise, uh, it is still very this, then that, this, then that. His thoughts go around for one or two or three lines of verse. Even that very first line, um, to be thus is nothing, line break, but to be safely thus. Um, he's using rhetorical ornamentation, right? You can hear that. If this, then that. If this, then that. Um and he's using repetition. One of my favorite lines is to make them kings, the seeds of Banquo kings. Um, he's talking about Mark Antony, Caesar. Um, you know, I did this, so he gets that. I did this, so he gets that. Very rhetorical. Um, and while I do feel a bit of uh, being more crunched, and again, that's where I really like this eidetic stickic verse, this I am very strict iambic pentameter. Um, because it keeps me very tightly in. And it works very well for if this, then that, if this, then that, if this, then that, which is where, again, um, not as much in this speech. Uh, lines tend to, as I said, sort of wrap around and wrap around, um, but there still will be some mid-place sejuras, which is just interesting. So we're still sounding like Macbeth, Right even as we're writing from Shakespeare, writing for Burbage, uh, the DNA of Macbeth is making itself clearer and different from the DNA of Hamlet, even just in terms of sejura, how long the schwumpf goes around. Is it a schwumpf per line? Is it a super schwumpf over many lines? What's sort of going on there? We're going to skip over any of those ending tags, and we're going to stay with uh, largely uninterrupted speeches of length. What's interesting, too, I'm noticing is we moved from a Macbeth that was very, even as he was doing a soliloquy, because he was doing a cut soliloquy, he was still integrated with the world as he does the murder and then murder and then murder and then murder, um, he becomes more and more isolated. Even the dagger speech pre-murder, he is having a conversation with something. He is still social. Whereas if you track him, he becomes more isolated even his soliloquies are becoming classically isolated, and he's no longer even addressing the earth or phantasms of the mind, with the exception of the Banquo one, but that falls under our madness soliloquy, so we'll keep that a little bit there. Let's move on. Okay, we are in Act 4, Scene 1, page 131. There we go. And we have... Uh, 
<laughs> We've just killed Banquo and tried to kill his son. Failed there, thank heavens. Um, and Macbeth, and Macbeth has just seen the weird sisters again. So directors don't have to figure out what else to let the weird sisters do, or throw in the questionable Hecate uh, scene, which is written in rhyming tetrometer, and I. I personally do not like, and again, personally to me, it, it doesn't feel like Bill. It it feels like someone else who probably, probably the actors playing the weird sisters were like, dude, we have nothing to do. Please give us something. And or um, maybe the audience was like, bring back the witches. They're like, you know, some apprentice said, all right, I'll write a quick scene for the witches to come back on. But in truth, in act four, scene one, Macbeth has just killed Banquo. He is trying to kill Macduff. Uh, and he went to the witches to find out where Macduff was going to be. And he found out a little bit about that and also found out that he will die when Burnham Wood uh, starts walking on its own. And then we have, and I think this is really interesting. It's, so this is, uh, it's the final lines of the scene and Lennox is there and while in this edition it says Macbeth aside or as we would say Macbeth soliloquy because it's way more than an inch of text um Lennox could absolutely overhear this in fact in my production like when I directed it <laughs> the one of nine times I directed of it um I had Lennox be a defector to Macbeth's side and so since Lennox was there, there was no problem for me to have Lennox hear this speech. And while Macbeth is definitely not addressing, um, and in this case maybe doesn't care in my production, doesn't care if Lennox hears him or not. Um, so we might call it a drift soliloquy. A drift soliloquy is when the character knows that they're in a scene, like that first cut soliloquy, but drifts away to do a soliloquy, out, you generally out loud, not caring that they are being overheard by other characters. I think we have a drift soliloquy actually in Hamlet's Oh, What a Piece of Work is Man. The first part very much feels like it's to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. The last two lines feel like they're to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And the middle part always feels like a soliloquy. Same thing with several of Hamlet's speeches. Again, we'll go further into drift soliloquies in another episode. Today we are walking through Macbeth. So Lennox says, uh, sorry, Macbeth says, fled to England, as in Macduff. Macduff has fled to England, which Lennox has just said. Lennox says, I'm a good lord. And then there's no necessarily, then Lennox leaves. And then Macbeth has this little soliloquy, and it goes, Time, thou anticipatest my dread exploits. The flighty purpose never is or took, unless the deed go with it. From this moment, the very first things of my heart shall be the first things of my hand. And even now, to crown my thoughts with acts, be it thought and done. The castle of Macduff I will surprise, seize upon Fife, give to the edge of the sword his wife, his babes, and all unfortunate souls that trace him in his line. No boasting like a fool. This deed I'll do before this purpose cool. But no more sights. Where are these gentlemen? Come, bring me where they are. So again, he cuts back to Lennox 
implying that Lennox is still there. And in fact, as I was reading it, I remembered why I had it directed to Lennox. And I think this is a fairly common choice because the whole, the castle of Macduff, I will surprise, seize upon Fife. He absolutely could be telling Lennox this and saying, hey, this is my, what I'm going to do. But let's say it is a soliloquy. Let's say you decide to direct it that way or to perform it that way. Um, We start with, again, another apostrophe, time, thou anticipatest my, or anticipatest, that's terrible, my dread exploits. Um, and then a little bit to himself, he's still very rhetorical, right? The very first things of my heart shall be the first things of my hand. We still have wraparound swoops, that's sort of a through line of thought. We still have the occasional seizure, a little bit less now. His thoughts are actually far more connected. Uh, really interesting. Um and we even have, uh, like, the end of the line is the end of the thought. The Castle of Macduff, I will surprise. Very straightforward. Very prosaic. Uh, no poetry, I would suggest, in here much at all. Um, he cuts away. He cuts back. It might be really interesting if anyone wanted to to do this, to um, to have a sort of thing where, like, he sort of, flickers in, flickers out, sort of like, I don't know, sci-fi or something. Um, But this also is a bit, again, of that villain soliloquy, which we're going to talk more about. The villain soliloquy, I would suggest, is different from the I want or ingenue soliloquy, uh, for which if you know musical theater and you know Howard Ashman, you've got an idea about that already. Um, In fact, the villain soliloquy, which we will talk more about, but Macbeth is just full of all sorts of different types, isn't it? The villain soliloquy, what I'm calling the villain soliloquy, is much more I will or I I will do or I have done or I am doing. So it's a bit more expository. It's a bit more no one can stop me. <laughs> um, but it is interesting Um Lennox is there. So talking about is Macbeth alone or is Macbeth isolating himself? Just the way that that it's structured can tell you something about character. Hamlet always sent people off. Um, when he needed to be vulnerable, he needed to be physically alone. Macbeth, I don't feel him really that vulnerable in these soliloquies. Tense, certainly, um, a little pressured, a sort of manic pressurizing, under pressure, uh, but not sort of freewheeling like Hamlet was. And perhaps now what's kind of interesting is whereas before he was aware he was in a scene or he sort of creates a scene with an apostrophe, now he may not care who hears him. We've already had his sort of mad scene with a Banquo ghost, and he seemed to have lived through that. So he may also be getting more brazen about speaking out loud and letting people hear him. So I want you to think about that. It's not just for all the writers out there and all the directors and all the performers and dramaturgs. It's not just about what you say in the soliloquy, but it's how you're framing it. Does the character need to be alone? Can they make themselves isolated? What does isolation mean? 
Richard II has only one soliloquy in it. Everything else is a speech, even his drift away soliloquies in the middle. Um, technically are in scene, but we'll, again, we'll talk about drift soliloquies, uh, more later. Um, yeah. So what are the circumstances surrounding to what degree does your character start to care or not care about being overheard? Interesting, right? These all tell you something about the character. Okay. We're skipping on after this break, we are nearly done. See you in a second. Turn to Flesh Productions is presenting a new Satter play, Orpheus Was an Asshole, which we filmed and are putting up on our YouTube channel. It's a hilarious new play about Orpheus and Eurydice, written by Joe Montoya and directed by our own Chris Rivera. It will be released first as a web series starting very soon, and then we'll continue through and there'll be a super cut. I love this play, and it's really nice to have a sadder play, particularly in these unprecedented times. Head on over to our YouTube channel to check out Orpheus Was an Asshole, written by Joe Montoya, directed by Chris Rivera. Presented by Turn to Flesh Productions. We'll see you there. All right, we are in Act 5, Scene 3. Um, and again, there's a question. Is this a cut soliloquy? Is this a drift soliloquy? Is this a classic soliloquy? Um, are there people there or not? Or, or even when do the people enter? Okay. Act three, or sorry, act five, scene three, and this is a soliloquy, then we'll look at it. Macbeth, um, we've just had the mad scene for Lady M. Macbeth knows that Macduff and Malcolm, Malcolm is the king's son, Duncan's son, are coming after him, and he's been told that until Burnham Wood uh, walks to Dunsinane, his castle, um, he'll stay alive. Uh, so we're we're getting there, crunch time. And Macbeth has, bring me no more reports. So that's, that's got to be to someone. In this case, probably the doctor who is just looking at Lady M. Let them fly all till Burnham Wood removed Dunsinane. I cannot taint with fear. What's that boy Malcolm? Was he not born of woman? The spirits that know all mortal consequences have pronounced me thus. Fear not, Macbeth. No man that's born of woman shall e'er have power upon thee. Then fly, false thanes, and mingle with the English epicures. The mind I sway by and the heart I bear shall never sag with doubt nor shake with fear. And then he, either a servant enters or he remembers there are people around. And he says, the devil damn thee black, thou cream-faced loon. Where gots thou that goose look? Okay. So again, I felt a sort of drift um, at what's that boy Malcolm? Was he not born of woman? Uh, it felt like I was, even if there were people there, I was no longer talking to them. And yet as an actor, I was also aware that I had a choice to talk to someone. There's a sense of he wants to grasp and act someone. You could hear, um, I still see midpoint sejuras. Lines are only wrapping around the end of a line to the beginning of a line. Um, but, and it it's easier to say quickly, as you heard. Um, words are sort of fly false things, fear not Macbeth. Things are flying out of his mouth. 
uh, literally with with the way the words are written with the consonants and the vowels. Um, but it's a little confused. Even reading it, I suggest you read it. I suggest, as with all of these, read through all the soliloquies. Because again, the question is, how do I make a soliloquy for a character? You kind of need to think about the entire play. As I mentioned with Gawain, most of his speeches, uh, he didn't have that many soliloquies, but most of his speeches were uh, coherent, very coherent. And so to have this one speech that's incoherent really tells us something. So if you're working on a character and they've got a lot of soliloquies or even speeches, walk through just those speeches and see how they cohere. See if they trace the line of your character. All right. So while doing this, I wasn't sure whether I needed to talk to someone, whether I was okay with being overheard, whether I wanted the Thanes to be there, the ones who have escaped, to be able to talk directly to them, whether I was going to grasp the audience. Really interesting. And again, as a director, to what degree is the doctor there and listening or the servant entering earlier and listening? To what degree is this out loud? To what degree is this interior? There's a lot of ambiguity. Um, To what degree is this a cut soliloquy? To what degree is this a classic soliloquy of being isolated completely? To what degree is this a drift soliloquy where it starts talking and then the actor sort of makes it a sort of classic soliloquy? Um, Lots of choices with that. And again, the character's getting faster, a bit more sporadic, um, while still retaining much of the qualities of his speech that we've seen before. Moving on, Act 5, Scene 5. And Macbeth, uh, you know, there may be this new um, servant called Satan, S-E-Y-T-O-N, but wink, wink, nudge, nudge, ooh, in in a play about witches and things, to a king who is obsessed with the devil possessing people. Uh, Satan, by the end of the play, is Macbeth's... um, and, and Macbeth is a baddie because King James comes from the line of Banquo and da 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 Anyway, it's all political. Um, again, we're going to ask the question, is Macbeth really speaking to anyone? Is this a soliloquy? Is this a monologue or a speech or an address? Is this a cut soliloquy? Is this a drift soliloquy? Okay, let's listen to it. Act 5, scene 5. Hang out our banners on the outward wall. The cry is still, they come. Our castle's strength will laugh a siege to scorn. Here let them lie till famine and the ague eat them up. Were they not forced with those that should be ours, we might have met them dareful, beard to beard, and beat them backward home. What is that noise? Okay. (laughs) So, and then um, Satan says, it is the cry of women, my good lord. Um, Because, uh, generally speaking, that's the moment that his wife has died of suicide. Um, And Macbeth goes on, I've almost forgot the taste of fears. The time has been my senses would have cooled to hear a night shriek, and my fell of hair would at a dismal treatise rouse and stir as life were in it. 
I have supped full with horrors, direness, familiar to my slaughterous thoughts, cannot once start me. Wherefore was that cry? Now, what's interesting is I feel like actually thus far, it does feel a bit like um, it's a speech with drift soliloquy moments. Let's keep going on. Satan says, the queen, my lord, is dead. And then Macbeth has, and again, technically it's in a scene and it's in response to someone, but here we have sort of the ultimate drift soliloquy. Let me go back a little bit. I have supped full with horrors, direness familiar to my slaughterous thoughts cannot once start me. Wherefore was that cry? So we're in a, a soliloquy, even though people are there, it's a drift soliloquy, a little drift soliloquy. And then cut, wherefore was that cry? Satan, the queen, my lord, is dead. Macbeth, she should have died hereafter. And you're going to hear a drift. There would have been time for such a word. Tomorrow. And tomorrow. And tomorrow. Creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out. Out. Brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And then a messenger comes in. Thou comes to use thy tongue, thy story quickly. And then the messenger says, Burnham Wood has come. <laughs> Actually, we'll keep going. All right. But you can hear. I mean, like, people treat that as a soliloquy. Technically, it's in scene. Why do we treat it as a soliloquy? Because, dear friends, he performs it in an isolated, not alone, but in an isolated sense where I think we we need to refocus our definition of soliloquy. Not that they don't intend to be overheard, but they do not intend or they do not care if they are overheard by another character. I think that's true. Or they're kind of like, they become unaware. In a drift soliloquy, you can't like focus on the fact that there are other characters there. And have you ever done that? Not where you're cutting in and out. Like, for example, if you're in a class or you're in a meeting and you're thinking your thoughts, you're daydreaming or whatever, and then someone asks you a question and you cut to the scene you're in, you answer the question, you cut back. Um, but it's a drift wherein perhaps you're talking to someone who's very boring, let's say, and you're waiting for your time to speak or your way to leave. And it's not a cut feeling in your brain. It's a drift. You're talking to them, you're in and out, you drift, you're wondering if all the canapes have been eaten. You drift back, maybe. You might cut back and then drift away again. Um, so tomorrow and tomorrow, tomorrow, perfect drift soliloquy. So we go back and forth a little bit. The messenger and Macbeth uh, told that Burnham Wood is coming. 
And then you're going to hear, again, this sort of cut, drift, are we soliloquizing, are we not? And Macbeth says, If thou speak'st false, upon the next tree shalt thou hang alive till famine cling thee. If thy speech be sooth, I care not if thou dost for me as much. I pull in resolution and begin to doubt the equivocation of the fiend that lies like truth. Fear not till Burnham Wub do come to Dunsinane. And now a wood comes towards Dunsinane. Arm, arm, and out, if this which he avouches does appear. There is nor flying hence nor tarrying here. I gin to be weary of the sun and wish the estate or the world were now undone. Ring the alarm bell, blow wind, come rack. At least we'll die with harness on our back. Okay, really interesting. Again, one of the things that I'm finding about Macbeth is, is he in scene with people or not? Yes, he is. No, he's not. Sometimes it wasn't just that he was cutting back to scene. He was cutting to what we call an address, which is when he's treating everyone as chorus, or in this case, everyone as army, right? Uh, a group that is technically in the world of the play, but kind of cannot affect really the circumstances of the world of the play. Scene seven of act five has, <laughs> has a cover, cover um, technically a soliloquy type thing, where he says, they have tied me to a stake, I cannot fly, but bear-like I must fight the course. What's he that was not born of woman? Such a one am I to fear or none. And then in comes young Seward and he kills him. Is it a soliloquy? Eh, it's more like an introductory tag. And in fact, he has uh, an ending tag as well in this scene because uh, the way that Shakespeare usually does like ending fights is, well, I mean, it's very cinematic. It's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, very short, very short scenes. Macduff has his one semi-cover soliloquy type thing. And um, Macbeth, again, has a cover intro. Why should I play the Roman fool and die on mine own sword? Whilst I see lies, the gashes do better upon them, which I don't know why that's in verse. It should be in paragraph. It's act five, scene eight. And then Macbeth is dead. Long live Macbeth. <laughs> So he ends with he ends with kind of an amalgamation of of these different types of soliloquy where the content of the outside, right? Can he be heard? Is he surrounded by people? Is he cutting away? Is he cutting back? Is he drifting? Is he doing an address? Is he doing an apostrophe? Is he actually examining his soul? Is he doing sort of a rhetorical question? Is he yelling at someone that isn't there, which you could argue the Banquo scene is? Um, all these things help us to understand the character of Macbeth. So I think that one of the things that we can absolutely say is, is one of the delights of a soliloquy is that soliloquy can, A, give us the spine of a show, uh, although we'll talk more about that in regards to things like Iago in Othello, as well as Benedict in Much Do About Nothing. But a character can give us a spine of the show. And character soliloquies not only let us into their mind, but if you're doing your dramaturgical work, seeing how they're placed, are they isolated? Are they actually alone? 
Are they cutting or drifting? Do they care? If they're overheard, are they speaking aloud? Are they in their mind? All these things tell us as well about the heart of the story. Well, going through Macbeth this particular time, and um, while I've played Lady M, and I've played Macduff, and I've played Malcolm, um, I have not played Mackers. And to be honest, I uh, besides today's podcast, I don't know that I have a particular interest in doing so. Um, but what I found in uh, taking that character out for a walk, as it were, is that it's not that he becomes more unhinged, really. He always has a fairly rhetorical, straightforward mind, which seems appropriate for a soldier, um, rather than perhaps the brilliant scholarship of Hamlet, but that his hubris or perhaps his mania comes in that he he's kind of reaching for people and afraid to have them there. He kind of doesn't care if he's in front of people. He becomes less and less empathetic. But even looking at the early speeches, I don't know that he's particularly empathetic. Um, that seed of not really connecting is woven into the text itself. He is not sending Lennox away um, after after the last witches scene. Um, he's connecting a little bit with daggers and with the earth. He's grasping for Satan. I, I didn't do that speech. Satan, Satan, I say. Actually, let's do it real quick. This is Act 5, Scene 3. It's right after Bring Me No More Reports. You're going to hear everything that we just talked about. Uh, that servant that he was yelling at, he who says that the English are coming, um, he sends away, take thy face hence. And then he's calling, Satan, I am sick at heart. When I behold Satan, I say, this push will cheer me ever or deceit me now. I have lived long enough. My way of life is fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf, and that which should accompany old age as honor, love, obedience, troops of friends. I must not look to have, but in their stead, curses, not loud but deep, mouth honor, breath, which the poor heart would fain deny and dare not. Satan. Okay. So again, you have the choice, is Satan there? Is he speaking to him? You have the choice. And I guess that's perhaps why the dagger speech is so iconic. Because <laughs> who does Macbeth have? I, I love that line. Things that, you know, someone in their old age ought to have. Honor, love, obedience. Troops of friends. To my mind, that troops of friends is the most honest thing Macbeth says in the entire play. But as we see from his soliloquies, he isolates himself. He Even his co-conspirator, Lady M, he drifts away from them. He drifts away from the witches. He drifts away from his own sanity. 
which is really a shame. And I do think, and we'll see in other soliloquies, such as Helena from Midsummer's, that just because you soliloquize a lot and you're isolated a lot, perhaps, certainly now during the pandemic, just because you're isolated doesn't mean you have to be like Macbeth and alone and making friends with daggers. Don't do that. But I hope, I guess, for all of you, that whether you're soliloquizing or apostrophizing or whatever it may be, that you too have troops of friends. And I will see you, friends, next time. Hamlet to Hamilton Exploring Verse Drama is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. Special thanks to Stars and Scansion patrons, Ben Claude, Madeline Farley, and Jasmine Nyack. If you'd like to become our patron and get different goodies, you can join us over on patreon.com slash Hamlet to Hamilton. Hamlet to Hamilton is hosted by Emily C.A. Snyder with audio engineering and sound design by Colin Kovarik. This podcast is part of the Turn to Flesh Productions audio network. You can learn more by going to hamlettohamilton.com or turntoflesh.org. If you liked this episode, please like, share, comment, subscribe. You know what to do. You can follow us on Twitter at Hamlet2Hamilton with the numeral 2 in between, or use the hashtag Hamlet to Hamilton or H2H with the numeral 2. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks' time as we continue exploring verse drama. <laughs>